my mom, uh, stopping uh, the operations of the bank, singing songs, and uh, making speeches about the uh, racism uh, on the part of the racist practice on the part of the bank. Now, my own particular involvement uh, was really that of a lawyer. I was the lawyer for court. I went to court to try to prevent the uh, restraining order, which was partially successful in that uh, the court did not prevent the total demonstration in front of the bank. It merely limited the number of picket lines and, and where it could take place. And I went out there to the bank and told the leaders what the court had ordered but uh, and advised them you know, not to go inside the bank, but uh, they decided that uh, civil disobedience uh, uh, sh should be demonstrated at that time, and they went inside the bank, and consequently, uh, they were arrested. But the point is, is that uh, they arrested all the leaders, including me as a lawyer, and uh, uh, I, I we, we appealed the case, but by the time the Court of Appeals decided that uh, at least four of us uh, were not guilty, we had already spent eight days in jail, and um, I was pretty upset about that, naturally. Um, Excuse me, could you not close the microphone cable? I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you, because all we're going to hear is... <laughs> oh, okay. Does that answer your question? Yes, yes it does. Now. Um, as I understand it, the, the leaders that were arrested, some of whom were not even at the bank at the time and had not in fact even gone in. Um, others who we've interviewed have said that it was very easy for the power structure to be able to get the list of names. Um, are you aware of how they obtained, quote, the leaders' names uh, which were placed on the injunction? No, I'm not. I'm not. But of course, there wasn't anything secret about CORE's organization. We met regularly. Uh, we picketed and demonstrated at a number of places prior to this and uh, were quite successful in obtaining some, uh, making some inroads uh, in getting blacks hired to uh, various types of jobs. Uh, but now how they got the names, I really don't know. CORE had been involved over a period of some months prior to the actual demonstration in August of 1963 with negotiating with various banks. Were you involved in any of those negotiations as the legal representative? Yes, I was. I was involved not necessarily so much with Jefferson Bank, but with other banks and trying to get them to uh, hire a certain percentage of blacks. You see, at this particular time, and it's kind of hard to envision 23, 25 years ago, uh, unless you were really involved, but at this particular time, none of the blacks had, I mean, none of the banks had blacks employed as clerks uh, or as tellers or as any kind of officer, loan officer, or what have you. I mean, it was, you know, essentially a lily white institution. Mm -hmm. Even though bank, even though blacks were pouring money into the banks, black businesses, individuals, had their wealth in banks. Uh, the banks represented one of the greatest racist institutions in the city of St. Louis back in the 1960s. And all we were doing 
was asking the banks to you know, lower your barriers and provide job opportunities for your black citizens. And uh, it was only when the bank, bank when the uh, Jefferson Bank demonstration uh, blew up and caused a great public outcry that we get results to the point now that you walk in the bank and you see a fairly substantial representation of blacks employed. As a matter of fact, I would say that probably the banking industry has one of the better records uh, in equal employment opportunity. One of the things I found difficult to understand is what made Jefferson Bank so different than I know you had worked with several other banks, and some of them had agreed to hire prior to Jefferson Bank, but none of them had, like you said, brought out an injunction. Uh, uh, what was it? What do you attribute this hostility uh, at Jeff Bank to that was different than all of the other banking institutions? I think that the board of directors, the president, the chairman of the board of Jefferson Bank, uh, Mr. Ross, son, Mr. Ross, uh, who ran the bank. I, I think that they um, they actually lacked the sensitivity of the times. I really think that uh, uh, they believed blacks to be inferior. Uh, I believe that they felt they had enough political clout to uh, prevent uh, uh, any progress field of civil rights. And uh, I guess what they intended to do was to show uh, the world and, and us uh, that uh, we could not force them to hire anyone that they did not want to hire. And, uh, uh, and I think that was the reaction, you know, of people with small minds. I think these men uh, lacked the Creativity. I think they lack the the intellect to really uh, foresee uh, a problem if they did not do what was right. Now we all know that that what followed. Um, nine people initially were arrested, and there were more demonstrations, and some who knew the injunction was still in effect. Uh, purposely defied the injunction and additional persons were, were uh, arrested up to the number of 19, I believe, through the months of uh, September, October. Uh, in addition, it, it seems like it was a legal nightmare. I mean, it was unbelievable, number one, how fast the bank was able to get the injunction in the first place. And then you were, were uh, tried um, in contempt I mean, the, the legal ramifications are, are what I'd like you to talk about to some degree and how, in fact, the, the need for additional lawyers. I know there were a number of lawyers who worked on the case, and that may have brought to focus the legal community here in St. Louis, if you could speak to that. Well, there was a swift action uh, because, um, you know, the petition that was filed was that we had violated the law. And really, 
wasn't no law. We didn't have any segregated laws in the state of Missouri, so to speak. Uh, uh, actually, uh, historically, uh, in, in St. Louis, uh, it has been fairly open. It was fairly open, um, except for the custom, which prevented uh, uh, meaningful integration. But uh, in the 60s, uh, uh, the biggest problem was job opportunities. You know, you, you tell a black kid to, uh, to get an education, get a college degree, and then they come back, and uh, the doors are closed to them. Uh, they'll give a a job to a white high school graduate over a black uh, youngster who went to college. And so uh, the anger and the frustration uh, was beginning to boil at a pretty high pitch. And the 1960s with, with Dr. Martin Luther King, President uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, really offered an opportunity for people to participate in a cause. Now, I know I'm getting away from the legal aspect, but, I, 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 but uh, uh, you know, it's not very many times in one's life that you have an opportunity to really fight for a cause and for a principle. Uh, and so when that opportunity comes, uh, you know, one should participate and get involved in a cause because as Dr. Martin Luther King once said that anyone who goes through life without ever being involved in a cause has not ever lived. And um, the 1960s represented an opportunity for a number of people to be involved in the cause, not just in the civil rights movement, but you had the cause of uh, fighting uh, against the the war in Vietnam, uh, and uh, and so and then since that time, there haven't really been very many causes to to fight. I mean, uh, now that the leaders are dead, uh, you know, there's no one great civil rights leader now uh, really involved in a cause for blacks, um, and. Uh, but the 1960s did set a tone that even today uh, has uh, significant ramifications uh, because a lot of people, a lot of young people, um, can go out and, uh, and uh, eat at a public establishment uh, without any fear of uh, discrimination, whereas back in the 60s and in the 50s, uh, there was rampant discrimination. Uh, they can apply for a job and, um, and, 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 a, and have a fair chance of getting one. And, uh, you know, we, those of us who sacrificed and struggled in the 60s, uh, made this possible. Uh, but as far as the legal ramifications are concerned, uh, you know, the, 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 the black lawyers in St. Louis uh, came out in force and did a tremendous job in fighting uh, the effort on the part of the Jefferson Bank in putting us in jail. Uh, unfortunately, the judge um, uh, didn't see the evidence in that way, and 
ruled against us, uh, but at least partially it was overturned by the Court of Appeals. Now, let me ask you one more specific question. Were, were the lawyers, I mean, it, I think the cause probably not only drew together the entire community and focused on the issue for both uh, African Americans and whites in St. Louis, but it, it particularly brought the black community into the throes of what was really happening here in St. Louis. And it seems like the cause drew the lawyers together, but was it, uh, did, did certain lawyers work on certain aspects of the case and, you know, um, you know, there were, for example, I know Margaret Bush Wilson defended Clay individually, um, and all of these different individuals had different sen sentences and different times, different fines they had to pay. Were they looking at it from those ramifications? Um, well, how, uh, how was that done? The, as I understand it, the lawyers uh, uh, attacked the case from both a subject matter and from an individual matter also. Uh, you mentioned Margaret Bruce Wilson, but her husband, uh, uh, Bob Wilson, who was very much involved with Clyde Cahill, uh, McDuffie, uh, and I, you know, I hate to name names no, because uh, you, you forget, you know, and some of these are already dead now. Uh, but, uh, you know, the thing that impressed me was the research and the, uh, the talent displayed in the courtroom arguing, you know, historic precedents, you know, because no other case similar to this had ever been fought in a St. Louis courtroom. Um, you know, the Dress God decision did not involve, uh, involve a man, a slave, uh, but this, this was a modern slave type of case. And so, therefore, a tremendous amount of research had to be undertaken. And uh, these African-American lawyers um, uh, showed their talents and uh, writing briefs. Uh, these cases are still referred to even today by historians and by legal scholars. And uh, it went all the way up to the Missouri uh, Court of Appeals. And eventually, A number of us uh, were released from jail uh, way prior to the time that we were given. You know, like, for example, the judge sentenced me to 60 days in jail, uh, holding me in contempt. And uh, through the efforts of, of these uh, African American lawyers, I only served eight days. Okay. You, so you only served eight days of your 60 day sentence total, right? Um, there was also a fine of $500. Right, which, um, I, which I never paid. You never paid. Well, actually, I was completely exonerated because they reversed my uh, my uh, decision. That is, uh, the decision against me was reversed. Now, because the, the legal ramifications went well into 1964, um, and, and, you know, persons served different periods of time and paid different amounts of fines, there seems to have been um, some long-term effect on the leadership of court in particular. Um, do you think there was some uh, discouragement, even though uh, there were blacks eventually hired at the bank, uh, do you think there was some discouragement as it relates to the, the leadership 
not only in CORE, but in the black community at that time? No, not at all. I think that uh, in the 1960s, the leaders of CORE are probably uh, did a greater job than at any other time in the history of uh, the Civil Rights Movement. But uh, leaders come and go. And uh, just like we are no longer active in CORE now, uh, others succeeded us. I mean, we passed the torch. I would say that uh, in, the, in the beginning of the 70s, those of us who were very active in CORE in the, in the late 50s and the early 60s passed the torch to others. Uh, a younger group of uh, activists uh, with, uh, with uh, greater creativity, greater imagination in fighting uh, racism, which was beginning to take a new form. The old open outward um, reaction to equality and integration um, no longer existed in the 1970s and really uh, does not exist now in the 1980s. And there are more subtle forms of racism. And, um, um, you know, we, when I say we, uh, those of us in the 60s, the demonstrators, uh, uh, had fought our battles, um, and so we were beginning to, uh, and, and we had become matured, and uh, and uh, we were beginning to uh, feel the comforts of life uh, because we were growing older, and so therefore the torch had to be passed to others who still had the fight in them and could fight with more modern weapons uh, to take on the type of racism existing in the 70s and in the 80s. That doesn't say that we still don't fight, I mean, but you know, like we do, all of us are still uh, fighting uh, and struggling, but it's in a different form. It, it's probably more individualistic now, uh, and, uh, and we're able to detect it. Because of our experience, we're able to detect it probably better than the average person can detect racism. So, so in, in, in keeping with the theme um, of a strong seed planted in relationship to civil rights, um, what has changed was because the new racism changed, the situation changed, there's been a new reaction to it in new ways. I mean, there isn't necessarily a need to pick it or demonstrate but other ways are, are taken up. Um, what do you see uh, the leadership of the 70s and 80s doing in St. Louis in relationship to civil rights? Well, what happened is that uh, after the demonstrations in the 60s, the March on Washington by Dr. Martin Luther King, the demonstrations all across the country and the lunch counters uh, and places like that, the uh, legislatures throughout the country began to pass laws. Congress passed the 1963 Civil Rights Law and then passed another law in 1968, I believe. Uh, and so uh, the seed was laid by the demonstrations, uh, by those willing to uh, sacrifice their personal liberties. Uh, you know, I used to leave my law office like maybe at six o'clock in the evening and go walk a picket line 
until the department stores closed at 9 o'clock. Um, but the laws enacted by the national government and by the various state governments and the city governments um, paved the way for the extensive amount of uh, freedom and liberties we have here today. Without the enactment of laws, people would not uh, extend uh, a helping hand to to the uh, unhappy minorities, would not provide a job, would not open up their uh, public places. Uh, and the proof of the pudding is that even though every public place is required to be open, every employer with uh, so many employees or more is required to to uh, hire people on the basis of merit. The laws do not cover the private clubs, do not cover the country clubs, you see. Uh, the laws do not cover the board of directors where policies are made. And consequently, they have not willingly opened their doors, you know. I mean, yeah, I can go out to uh, a country club and play golf as a guest of one of its members, you know, uh, and financially and otherwise I might be better than that member. But as long as the law does not compel a country club to offer me a membership or at least not refuse me on the basis of race or color, then they do that. And so when you look around and you see uh, integration and equality is not because it was done out of the goodness of their hearts and it wasn't because of any humanitarian gesture on their part. It was because the seeds were laid by the demonstrations and the fights uh, of these civil rights groups and a very uh, forceful, uh, forward-thinking president in John F. Kennedy who set a tone for the country, President Johnson and the enactment of laws throughout the state to prevent things like demonstrations and people getting hurt and causing all kinds of disruptions. Uh, so these laws were passed because they should have been passed a long time ago. That leads me then to, since in fact the laws have been enacted and all over the country and in St. Louis in particular, is that to say that um, civil rights and the civil rights movement as such died with those demonstrations in the 60s? As we knew it, yes. What took its place? Particularly here in St. Louis. The other thing too is I won't have Ernestine's question in the answer, so you might want to put that, rephrase that in your own words and then go on to explain yourself. Well, you asked the question, what is taking the place of the civil rights movement, that is, the, um, the, the thrust uh, and the push for uh, equality in the form of demonstrations, uh, picket lines, uh, uh, and that uh, physical attack on, head on on the problem. Um, well, that particular type of remedy uh, is no longer the remedy for the 80s because 
as I said before, we don't have the open, uh, you know, outright resistance uh, to uh, equal employment or other things. It's more subtle. It's there, it's prevalent, and it has to be attacked. And so it's attacked now mainly in the courts. Uh, there have been a lot of employers who've been burned by daring to discriminate. Also, uh, statistically, uh, you can prove discrimination. If you were to walk into a, say, a, a business, and you look around and you see no blacks, then of course there's a presumption of uh, some form of racism. Uh, the same way with schools. If you go to a private school, for example, uh, and you see no black teachers, there's a presumption of uh, racism involved on the part of the leadership. If you go to a board meeting of some of the leading corporations in this city, and you see no blacks sitting on the board of directors, where uh, the board of directors, where policy is made, uh, then there's a presumption of discrimination. And the same way with uh, private organizations, social organizations, etc. When an individual, therefore, is confronted uh, with uh, this situation, uh, it becomes a, an individual uh, cause uh, celebrate, and individuals then go about attacking the situation, or they get themselves a lawyer, uh, because there is no, no movement afoot to go out and picket this place or to demonstrate. Most of the remedies now occur in the courts of our uh, land, and uh, they've been very successful. So, so the solution of the 70s and 80s, um, I guess particularly the 80s, have been that um, while there aren't the massive demonstrations and the media hype associated with it, um, there still exists, number one, a movement in that individuals are taking up the cause whenever they see racism or it confronts them, they deal with it through a legal perspective. Uh, what then is there for, uh, you know, there, there were churches, uh, CORE, Group Core Action, the Black Liberators. These organizations existed in the 60s, and the question is twofold. Were they active? Did they work together around these issues as such? Um, and where are they now? And where is that kind of, uh, if there ever was a cohesiveness where the churches and organizations and individuals work together on a set of issues? These organizations, these organizations, these churches, all were active in the movement in the 1960s. No question about it. Without the uh, concerted effort and the combined effort of all of these organizations, the civil rights movement in the 60s would not be successful, and the progress that you see today would not have been made. But as I but to go back 
uh, to what I said previously that it's not very often in our lifetime when the opportunity arises to participate and fight for a cause, you know, a meaningful cause. Uh, it happens maybe once in a person's lifetime. I mean, you know, back during the, uh, the days of slavery, uh, in that period of time, the Underground Railroad, I mean, that was, that was a, a fight and a struggle back in those days. Uh, and so in everybody's life, the opportunity uh, may arise only once. And so it is with our life. The opportunity arose in the 60s, and I, for one, am very happy that uh, the opportunity was there and that I had the moral courage and fiber to participate in that movement, to do something uh, to improve and to help African Americans move into the mainstream of American life. You see, uh, what people don't realize is that we did not want anything personally. We had nothing to individually gain from demonstrating or being put in jail. I was already a lawyer. Uh, uh, Marion Oldham you know, was a school teacher. Her husband was a lawyer. Uh, Norman Say was a school teacher. Clay was an alderman. You know, so uh, we did this for others. We did this because of a commitment, uh, because we firmly believed in equality uh, and that it was a part of our uh, life, it was a part of our faith, it was a part of our uh, being here on earth to participate and fight against racial injustice. And that's what we have done. Was there any direct impact personally for you uh, from your activity in the, in, the, in the demonstrations and involvement with CORE as it related to your running for public office? I mean, what's, was there, what was the correlation there? Okay, at that particular time in 63, uh, I was just a lawyer. I'd been practicing law for about a couple of years. And I really, at that particular time, had no aspirations to uh, run for public office. Uh, but in 1964, an opportunity did come up. And because I was a young lawyer, and because I had shown a, a type of, of a fight that perhaps maybe others cannot show, other black lawyers have not shown. Um, I got the support. People rallied around uh, me in my quest for public office, and and I won. And not only that, but I kept on winning. And when I ran for the Senate, I defeated a man who had held that office for 53 consecutive years, a man by the name of Senator Mike Kenney, and, uh, and I defeated him. And, and, and the times that I did run for office, uh, my district was never overwhelmingly uh, black. It, it was always at least 50-50 in terms of the demographics of white and black, and I was still able to win. So there is a direct correlation. I think others have said, either directly or indirectly, they benefited from their activities in the 60s movement because, it, it, if nothing else, it heightened their social awareness and their, their relationship and role to society as a whole. That's true, too. But I think that all of us also were harmed 
by that experience. I, I think that uh, our, my, my personality probably would have been much more charming uh, if I had not felt the scars of the 1960s. Um, I think that it hardened us uh, and it, um, you know, it um, developed a type of uh, shield that um, probably made us much more suspicious of uh, the various facets of our society. It, it caused us to question the things uh, where the ordinary person would not have. And uh, it, it, it had a, a, a direct effect on on the type of personality that we have today. That's, that's what it did because, you know, in the 60s we were very innocent people. I mean, I'd just gotten out of school. I'd been going to school all my life. And I had a dream you know, that I could come out into this world and, and uh, live a normal life like everybody else, but that wasn't the case. And, and as I look back, over those years, I can see that some of the personality traits that I have are a direct result of the struggles, and the fights, and the sleepless nights that I had in the 1960s. With all of that, and even though what you're saying is that you were hardened as such, uh, maybe even scarred, I still hear you saying you were better for the experience. Yes. Regardless. I'm better as an individual because I fought for a principle. And I think that St. Louis is better because we dare to fight for a principle. Um, one final question. Um, it's been said that, um, and it's a given fact, that there were no race riots as as we know them as such, particularly when Dr. King was killed in 1968. Um, there have been earlier race riots early in the uh, early part of the 20th century, 1920s, in East St. Louis. But there were no riots in St. Louis. Uh, what do you attribute that to? Well, there were riots. There were riots in the 1940s uh, involving public swimming pools. Uh, there was a big race riot at, Fair, at uh, Fairgrounds Park in the 1940s because blacks were segregated in the use of public swimming pools. Describe that riot. I mean, talk about well, it. Well, uh, Fairgrounds Park uh, had a public swimming pool. And um, uh, at first, blacks were permitted to swim without any restrictions. But then uh, the fathers, to, the fathers decided to. I say the fathers, the, the city fathers, because the park was owned by the city, decided to uh, segregate the blacks and decided that they could only swim at certain times, and certain days, and that sparked a, 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 a race riot because the blacks resented that, and um, all over the city of St. Louis, uh, 
there were fights, and there were riots breaking out uh, that lasted uh, perhaps maybe uh, a month or so. Now, I was just a little kid then, but uh, I, I remember that. There was a potential for a race riot in the 60s also. Uh, there were some confrontations with uh, some white police officers, but it could have very easily exploded into a riot of, uh, of uh, unparalleled uh, proportions. Uh, but St. Louis has always been blessed with cooler heads among its black leaders. And uh, we were able to, and I was very much involved in that, we were able to uh, uh, cool the situation and, uh, and, and fight uh, in a manner that was more uh, indicative of the democratic process, and that is walking picket lines and demonstrations. So you're saying the existing leadership was able to, in fact, quell what might have turned into uh, race riots through right. What, through example, the demonstrations, or through actually working out there in the community? Through, through, through uh, meaningful dialogue with the police department and with the city fathers. Uh, Mayor Tucker, Raymond Tucker, was an excellent statesman. Uh, and uh, uh, there were some high-level police officers who uh, had been involved uh, in the demonstrations to the extent that they uh, were there to maintain the peace and tranquility. And so they understood, and we were able to, to get to them, who got to some of the other people, and the police officers were called in, and they were uh, disciplined uh, for their confrontation. You mean specially trained for this kind of confrontation? No, no, no. The police officers that almost caused a riot oh, by their confrontations oh, with I demonstrators see. were called in and they were disciplined oh. for this type of reaction mm -hmm. on their part. And otherwise, St. Louis could have had a, a riot very similar to Watson, Watson, California. I mean, they could have had buildings burning even now if... Uh, things have not uh, gone well. Was there such a thing as police brutality? There's always been police brutality uh, everywhere. Uh, but this was not a problem in the 60s because uh, you know, I give credit to the police department. The police department sent out police officers who had some intelligence, who had common sense, and who had some public relations training. And uh, we never had problems with police officers on the picket line at all during the many days that I demonstrated. Uh, they had uh, plain clothesmen uh, who, uh, who were friendly to speak to you uh, and uh, were not uh, there to uh, cause any problems. Uh, is there something you'd like to say in conclusion that kind of capsulizes the civil rights movement um, as you see it, either for that period of time or as you see 
what the future holds for us okay, here in St. Louis. Yes, uh, I would say that even though uh, there has been a considerable amount of improvement and progress in race relations, uh, there still exists uh, a substantial amount of uh, racism. You know, I've always, you know, a person is not born with uh, hostility toward blacks. Whenever I have met a person that I felt was a racist or who performed racist acts, I always felt that uh, they were taught that by their parents uh, or it was part of their upbringing. Because uh, I've met some uh, white Americans from the Deep South at school with them, uh, who uh, had a humane understanding and respect for other people. Uh, so, you know, my own personal feeling is, is that if you come across a person who, who is a racist or who discriminates, it's because it's part of their, their background and uh, uh, that's something that they were taught and it's something that they have not been able to grow out of. I think that if we're ever going to reach uh, the uh, ultimate and race relations, if we're ever going to have a society free of bigotry and racial hostility, uh, those people who are in positions of leadership, and I don't just mean public officials, I mean people who are in positions of authority in their private corporations, in their private homes, uh, must take believe and must become sensitive to this problem and work toward its elimination. For example, were I white and sitting on the board of directors of, say, the St. Louis Country Club, um, I would take the risk of trying to get my fellow board members to uh, invite blacks to join the country. Uh, you know, it's not enough to go to a, a meeting at a school, you know, with a black parent and sit there at a basketball game and a football game and enjoy the football game because the black parent's son is out there running making touchdowns for the private schools and then to go back to your country clubs and not invite the same guy that you respect and feel equal to at a, at a school function that your kids go to and not do something about the segregated and discriminatory laws at the country club. And the same way uh, with uh, serving on the board of directors of a savings and loan association. You know, uh, when I was in the Senate, I used to help the savings and loan associations. And every now and then when I run across the president of the Savings and Loan Association, I'll say to him, uh, do you have any blacks on your board? You know, invariably, they'll say no. But they'll say we have an assistant vice president. You know. But here again, are you telling me that out of the 12 people that serve on your board, you can't invite one black? You know, as a symbol of 
of your humanity, you know, during your lifetime? You know, what are you going to tell a good man when you, when you die, when he asks you about your humanity toward other people? And I think that if board of directors, these men and women on the board of directors, uh, would exercise their influence uh, to the extent that uh, equality and, and uh, job opportunities were provided for blacks in a meaningful way, uh, we could go a long way toward uh, eliminating the subtle racism that we have here in our society now. If the headmasters and the board directors of private schools, you know, we got some of the best private schools in the country, you know, would hire blacks as school teachers and not as a basketball coach, for example. Uh, they, the blacks, could serve as role models, not only for their black students, but for the white students also. And, you know, it's this type of, um, of uh, you know, lack of sensitivity, it's this type of, of, um, of a lack of sensitivity on the part of people in leadership positions that has caused racism to remain prevalent in our society. And it shouldn't take a lawsuit, you see, to change and remedy this situation. Men of goodwill should be able to come up with their creative ideas and solve the problems in a more meaningful way. And uh, this is the biggest problem I see today. And this is the way that I see that it can be solved. All right, thank you very much, Mr. Howard. Uh, I think we're at the time for the question I'd ask you, you had spoken to the onus being on individuals as such in their private organizations and businesses, but my question to you is what is the onus for the black community? Uh, do we not have uh, some kind of involvement as a group that we need to make? Well, that's an excellent question, but in any struggle and fight for a principle, seldom do you get an entire community involved. And that's true whether you're talking about civil rights, whether you're talking about uh, uh, equal rights for women, uh, and whether you're talking about abolishing slavery, all the slaves were not for that. Uh, but I know that in, when you hear my version of how the modern day forms of racism is to be resolved. And when I, my solution is that individuals uh, must take up the battle of pride uh, and fight it on an individual basis whenever it's confronted. That sounds like a very slow, uh, painstaking uh, way to solve the problem. It does. Reverend Jackson, Jesse Jackson, has started something which was new, innovative, in contacting the 500 corporations and getting them to sign a commitment or a letter of understanding about 
subtracting their businesses with flags, uh, hiring flags in other departments, uh, and putting blacks on their board. But then he got involved with his personal quest to be president of the United States, which I'm not criticizing, but as a matter of fact, I was a delegate for him. Uh, and that seemed to have set back that innovative, uh, very creative uh, remedy for the problem. And um, that was on a national scale. And until we can find another leader who's willing to, or who has the character and the status, the national status, to do something similar to this, um, it's my belief that unless something catastrophic occurs in, in our country, that uh, causes the natives you know, to rise, then uh, I believe you know, for the next decade, there's going to have to be individual efforts. Individual efforts have precedent. Uh, also. But it is a slow um, process. But if you burn a few people in court, corporations, uh, individuals, uh, the word filters out and it causes others to be a little bit more socially responsible in their actions. Uh, but unfortunately, I do not see any particular leader on the horizon. I do not see communities uh, who tend to be comfortable, uh, you know, right now in that, you know, they can go any place they want to. Um, you know, inflationary um, uh, economics have uh, given them a certain amount of economic power in which to buy themselves a home and and to um, a certain amount of exposable income to buy the, the necessities and some of the uh, luxurious things in life. And like I said, unless there is something of a you know, great catastrophe that caused the natives to uh, become restless, um, <laughs> then I don't really see a movement from society point of view. Grassroots zone. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> There's a couple of things that you talked about concerning uh, how the nature of the, the civil rights business, so to speak, uh, has changed from the 60s to the 70s and 80s. Uh, Norman Say said something very similar to that, uh, but his attitude was that maybe the job wasn't done well enough that people didn't expect uh, things to sort of fizzle out like they did. Uh, that to have done it again, he said it would have been good to have prepared for the future and what the future would bring in terms of, quote, 
the subtleties of racism and so forth. Do you feel like you did your job? Do you feel like, uh, or do you feel like that you've got an incomplete sense on, on the way things worked out? Well, that's a, a very good question, and of course, uh, the job was incomplete anytime you have remnants of uh, racial discrimination, the job is incomplete. But to say that we did not do a good enough job, uh, I would have to disagree with. Uh, I think the job was incomplete because they killed our leaders. They killed Dr. Martin Luther King. They killed President John F. Kennedy. They killed uh, Robert Kennedy. And um, they threw a lot of people in jail, right? Megger, Edward, uh, Eggers, out in Mississippi, and places like that. Uh, movements don't last very long. Uh, the 1960s represented a very exciting uh, decade in our society because there were a number of movements taking place. Uh, the Civil Rights Movement actually sparked the movement against the war in Vietnam. And the Civil Rights Movement also sparked the movement for equality among women. Um, and um, once civil rights laws were passed, once people uh, moved into the uh, lunch counters uninhibited, once the people in the South could vote without having to read the Constitution. Um, once there were laws on the books involving uh, job opportunities and then the experience of seeing blacks as tellers in banks and as vice presidents in banks and a number of people, African Americans who were appointed on the boards of directors of the giant 500 corporations such as Monsanto, uh, Coca-Cola, uh, and other corporations like that, the movement necessarily died. And racism took another form because it had been outlawed to uh, you know, throw people out of a public uh, dining hall. It was outlawed to uh, discriminate against the sale of property to a black person in a white neighborhood. And so, therefore, uh, those people and organizations who were prone to discriminate on the basis of race or color had to come up with ingenious ideas to accomplish their goals. And then we, on the other hand, had to come up with solutions to solve these types of 1980 uh, racism, okay? And if we have failed at all, we have failed to find the right solutions for racism in the 1980s. Uh, we started in the right direction when Jesse Jackson had his organization to contact the corporations, the 500 corporations, and got commitments and letters of understanding from them, from them to hire blacks in meaningful positions, 
and to put them on the board of directors and to subcontract uh, with, with the small businessmen. Uh, but his personal aspirations to become president, which I am not knocking, uh, but it, uh, it delayed uh, this type of, of uh, solution, which I felt uh, was a modern-day weapon to combat racism in the 1980s. Okay, a couple more questions, but that was a nice answer. Uh, now, we talked a little bit about uh, the legal dimensions of the Jefferson Bank uh, demonstrations. Um, and you've also talked a little bit about how it was a hardening experience. And this is, this is the kind of thing that I've heard from other people as well. Um, between the bar complaints that were filed, the nature of the way people ended up getting in jail, uh, the types of sentences that were given to people, respected community members, the outrage of the whole situation, really feeling like the odds are stacked up.